The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callaghan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound. We talk to a lot of people on this show about what it takes to make an idea successful. But one part that doesn't always get raised, but that I think is one of the top factors, is getting access to the right capital at the right time. Not getting access to the funds at the right time to grow equals failure. Getting capital that demands you do the wrong things spells trouble. Getting capital and not spending it well spells even worse trouble. It's an industry where one win can carry 10 losses, and changes in markets, technology and personnel can turn a surefire bet into a tanker and vice versa. It's an area that fascinates me. People like the team from A16Z have done a great job in popularising the founder-centric VC and approach. And the way some of their influences have been portrayed on shows like Silicon Valley mean that the VC and pop culture is seen as a big, exciting chase. But what's it really like? What kind of people can do it? And if you're a company with a big dream, how do you get a top VC behind you? Well, Today's guest is here to help. John Henderson is a partner at one of Australasia's leading VC firms, Airtree. They have investments in great companies like 90 Seconds, Canva, Prosper and Joyous, who we've had on the show. John came back to Australia after being a founding principal at transatlantic venture firm White Star Capital, where they invested in some companies you've certainly heard of, like Dollar Shave Club. And he got into VC through being part of successful companies like Sumley and Facebook, and early in his career, management consulting. To talk what it's like and how it works, John joins us now. Thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having me, Simon. Hey, so... Kind of to take a couple of steps back before getting into venture capital, tell me a bit about your career beforehand. Uh, I saw in your, your, your bio on the site that you said that you started out by founding uh, Bush Campus, which didn't work out, but you've said that it uh, taught you more than a lot of the things that did. Tell me about that. Oh gosh, that's a lot of steps back. Um, so Bush Campus was a business I co-founded straight out of university. We Our, our mission was to create an outdoor recreation and, high, and development camp for high school students. And by development, I mean personal development. So we would take them out into the bush, put them through very difficult experiences, and then work on both the physical and mental with a hope of you know, growing young men and women. Um, and it, it, was a, it was an amazing journey. We, I co-founded it with a friend of mine from, from university. Uh, his father, in fact, owned a ski lodge up near, up near Threadbow in New South Wales. And so we took advantage of that and used some of those facilities from which to build a, a summer camp. Um, and we constructed facilities. We had 
you know, 15, 20 people working at any given time. We had thousands of students come through the program. It was, um, it was, it was a transformational experience for me from a management perspective, from a working with other people perspective, from a motivating uh, staff perspective. You know, the, the laborers on the construction side are a very different type of management challenge to, um, to very smart people in a management consulting firm. And so, um, so I learned a ton. As you say, it didn't work out. And I think, I think that was for a few reasons. Um, the, the, the key of which was I thought I was going into business with uh, a friend and co-founder when in fact I was going into business with a friend and his father. Um, and I think I learned a lot about dealing with families and getting economics aligned and, and sort of complementary skill sets and that kind of thing. But, um, but, you know, two or three years of my life, not wasted, but, uh, but it's not Facebook either. <laughs> and I guess that's one of the big uh, things you can draw from an experience like that, that if you're going to put all of your, your heart, soul and energy into something, it's got to be something that's set for, for scale and uh, that you have enough control over all the elements that you can actually make it work. I think that's right. I mean, I'm not sure it needs to be set for scale. There's, there's plenty of great businesses that remain three, four, five person enterprises and, and you know, they live a very comfortable and, and happy existence and are in control of their own destiny. So I you know, we're going to talk about venture later, and I think that comes with a specific risk profile and uh, and specific kind of requirements about how big you have to be. Bush Campus wasn't so much one of those businesses. You know, we took some debt, but uh, but certainly no no rocket fuel. Um, but but you do have to have you do have to have the right team in place, and you have to have your economics perfectly aligned. And uh, and we failed on the latter point. And then an area that you got into, which which I'm kind of fascinated with, uh, uh, in the same way I'm fascinated with VC, is is management consulting. And it's another one of these industries that has this reputation of kind of you know um, young young kind of like um, masters of the universe coming in and changing companies and shaking things up and kind of analysing industries. And it seems to be like a very um, exciting, hard working. Uh, taking an Excel spreadsheet and changing changing the world kind of um, environment. What what's it actually like compared to that kind of uh, stereotype? Yeah, it's interesting you describe it that way. I I think the fashionable thing for people in my position to do is be a bit dismissive of their of their management consulting roots and just say, oh, you know, we were just spreadsheet junkies or good at making PowerPoint slides. I actually loved it. I had I had a great time at the Boston Consulting Group, and it it was partly because it was just a magnet for very, very smart people who were a little bit lost. Um, you know, in, a number of the people I worked with have gone on to impressive academic careers. Others have founded their own businesses. Um, others have gone on, you know, one is a judge now. There's, there's this, one is a, one is a um, plastic surgeon now. So that it's, that it attracts this diaspora of, of really interesting, motivated people who just don't really know what they want to do. Um, and that I think that confluence of minds and, and interests leads to, you know, a really healthy organisation internally, but also some new perspectives on on the businesses that uh, that we worked with, uh, and hopefully some insights for them. So I had a great time at the Boston Consulting Group, and um, and it was it was fascinating working with super smart people on really challenging problems, but also a little bit frustrating in the sense that you would you would provide advice to one of your clients. Um, and then just wander off into the sunset and sort of leave them to their own devices. And that, I, I sort of, as someone, I guess, who tried to build his own thing um, and, and knew what it was like to have his hands on the tools, I found it stimulating to look at the problems, but frustrating not to be able to execute against them. Yeah, that, that's a remarkable thing, isn't it? That idea of you have to become, I guess, 
so invested in the company and its challenge and how you'd like to change that. And then you give them the presentation and, and watch either nothing happen or it get executed not exactly as you would have, but you're you're already you're already out of the game by then. That's right. And and if nothing happens, it's your fault. And if it gets executed and goes great, then you know obviously management yeah. takes all the credit for that, which is which is fine. But um, but not being able to tangibly point to something that you've done, I found frustrating in the end. But the the process and the people around it, I would um, I would recommend to anyone. And it's such an interesting place where, when there's so much effort put into specialisation, especially kind of in the first ten years of people's uh, careers, to be able to have that kind of generalist role and bring curiosity, insights from other areas and disciplines, not even being linked to one industry necessarily, where you know people have to kind of specialise and you know, what, whatever kind of vertical that they've found themselves in. Uh, and, and that seems kind of in, invigorating as well. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I remember I did three projects in a row where I worked for Sydney Airport on the first one. Then I worked for West Farmers on a supermarket chain. And then I worked for News Corp on um, their thinking around digitizing from print media to, to the iPad at that time. So there's, there's three just completely different industries, completely different problems and um, bringing some commonalities and perspectives to them but uh, but you really had to be on your on your mental game and i'll bet some of that kind of cross sector wider thinking comes in later uh in the vc world but before you got there um t- tell me where you went next because you were you're quite early on and and working with um facebook as it was kind of finding its world uh linking up with other apps and other things that people use in their life hey yeah that's right so i was part of the partnerships team at facebook in europe so I was based in their London office, um, not super early days, but, but you know, much earlier than now. So we were a couple of thousand people while I was there. And, and Facebook's, a big part of Facebook's strategy then as now is integrating with, other com- integrating with other companies who need to leverage the social graph for their growth. And so in Europe, for example, we did partnerships with groups like Spotify. Um, you may remember five, six, seven years ago that all of your friends were annoying you by, sh- by playing all of the, by, or sorry, by showing all of the songs that they were listening to in the right-hand side of their newsfeed. That was an integration that I you know, worked on. Um, we did an integration with TripAdvisor where all of a sudden you could see, rather than seeing that Jimmy457 thought that a hotel was great, you saw that your friend Peter thought the hotel was great. And that obviously had a greater social proof and relevance to you, which made TripAdvisor more powerful, but it also made Facebook more valuable. Uh, and and we, simul- we also did... Media partnerships. So we did a big partnership with the BBC, for example, around the London Olympics in 2012. Um, so, so a bunch of different partnerships with different organisations, all of whom could take advantage of, of Facebook's scale and network for their own benefits. And those partnerships as well ended up being super influential, didn't they, in terms of the Facebook kind of uh, the like button that appeared around the internet and the login that uh, let you access other sites meant that Facebook's advertising was able to know what users were doing elsewhere and uh, become much more valuable as well, wasn't it? Yeah, look, that, that's fair and that's something that obviously they're being challenged on today. Um, I think at, the, at that time, and we're talking you know, 2011, 2012, this was all about making Facebook a more valuable and useful experience. And obviously the like button and the OAuth, so the, the login into sites, just made the internet a more seamless experience, to be honest. I mean, you didn't need to have 17 passwords for all of the different sites that you accessed. The Facebook OAuth was a, was a you know, valuable and useful thing for users. Um, it had the side benefit, obviously, of making advertising more targetable, and, and that's Facebook's business model. But, um, but I don't think, certainly I never experienced anything nefarious about that. I think, I think Facebook gets a tough rap in the media these days 
that it's um, you know it's this big money grabbing machine that that's done everything to to target ads at you unfairly. I think I think Facebook fundamentally always has been focused on the user and building a great user experience. And certainly when I was there, um, Mark's focus was very much on product and, and advertising was almost a necessary evil to him to support that. So um, so they're going through some difficult times today and some of those come out of some of the partnerships that they've done, obviously. But, um, but certainly when I was there, the intention was focused on making a great experience for the user rather than anything you know, nefarious around rigging elections. And I think if you take a couple of steps back and look at um, the way that Facebook is being held to the standards of media companies, because it's you know kind of lifted a lot of the advertising that used to support media companies, but those standards that media companies have, they didn't happen overnight. They were things that were kind of like uh, they evolved and were hard fought for uh, because of kind of overreach and missteps. And perhaps that's just the process that now Facebook is going through uh, as well. Yeah, look, I think they're in a really difficult position um, they they're fundamentally are a platform, right? So, so all of the content on Facebook is created by their users, whether that be videos posted or opinions posted or, you know, anything that could be offensive is, is not from an editor or a writer paid by Facebook. It's by someone who logged on with a free account, which may or not even be them. Um, and then they're being held to defamation standards and and having other, you know, regulations imposed on them like a normal newspaper would, which is, which is kind of okay if you're a newspaper and you, you know, have editorial control over what's on your site. But if you're Facebook and you have millions of posts a minute, I have some sympathy for them um, about how difficult it is to manage that. And so obviously there's a huge effort these days, both human and algorithmic, in, in sorting, preventing and blocking content. But it's a, it's a monumental challenge and I think... Um, it's not just Facebook, right? Like YouTube, Twitter, a whole bunch of the other platforms have this issue. But um, how we deal with this will be will be important for for the sort of democratic dialogue, and and obviously has implications for you know elections and and free speech. So um, I don't know the answer, but uh, but I do have some sympathy for the challenges that that the CEOs of these companies are facing, uh, and they are you know as, as such significant entities with billions of users mm. and people they are they are the questions of our of our time now aren't they um and i suppose after having worked there you spend the rest of your life having to have conversations about it with people who are like oh th- thanks for the election no i, I love it <laughs> look I, I think where it, where it gets really hard is is two things right like one is things that just absolutely shouldn't be broadcast so you know mass shootings that get live broadcast on on the platform is um is a huge issue the other is the other is impersonation um, there, there have been, particularly on YouTube, there have been a number of um, deepfakes where you know a famous celebrity has been put onto the body of a porn actor, for example, and then that gets broadcast live, um, and people interpret it to be to be real. And so I think you know there's a, there's a few different areas where these things are being live streamed um, or just shared later, and causing causing real issues for individuals and society. Um, but there are also benefits to the ability to live stream your opinion. So, so where that balance gets struck, and, and it, it would be a shame, I think, to not allow live streaming just because it has a few fringe problems. But, but those fringe problems are real, so, so dealing with them is a big challenge. Yeah, and the way that YouTube seems to be dealing with it at the moment um, by saying that you can only live stream if you have 100 subscribers, which is their new um, uh, take on that, seems to be quite a good mechanism, uh, maybe compared to 
uh, things where it's like you only can't if you've um, if you've shown past issues. But I don't know. It's, <laughs> let's not get into the, great, the, the guts of that. Yeah. <laughs> hey, um, and then in terms of the the VC, you know, there are a couple of kind of ways that people can come to being a VC, and one that's very kind of well known is by being. Uh, a founder or deeply involved or integral in kind of a company that's run through a VC process, uh, you know, of, of rounds and building a company and maybe going to an exit. And that, that was that was your uh, way in, wasn't it, with Sumly? Yeah, sort of. So, I mean, I didn't found Sumly. I joined uh, I joined very early in the journey before we'd launched a product. I, Sumly was an, a unique company in the sense that our founder, Nick D'Aloisio, was 16 when I joined him. Um, and that came with... That came with challenges and benefits, obviously. Um, but he was an exceptional young man um, and, and built a team around him and attracted venture capitalists um, and a bunch of very high-profile angel investors. We, when we raised the first round for Sumley, this was the time when, when party rounds were a real thing. And we had this kind of who's who of, um, of interesting people behind us, from Stephen Fry to Ashton Kutcher to Brian Chesky, Yoko Ono, uh, Rupert Murdoch. It was this remarkable group of, of people who, who joined to help. Um, and they were they were all they were all kind of backing into this vision that we had at Sumly, which was that um, that we could algorithmically summarize content everywhere and anywhere. And and this is at the time when when smartphones were on their way up, but not necessarily ubiquitous yet. And so one of the big questions in the internet was how do you consume content that's been designed for a desktop screen on a mobile? Um, and Nick had designed a summarization algorithm which could essentially take content of any length and bring it down to four, five, six sentences. Um, and so our vision was, well, look, you just take all of the content on the internet and bring it down to a mobile screen algorithmically. And so we started with the news because that's a great daily use case. You don't need the summary to be great to get the gist of the news, but you want a bit more than the headline. And, um, and off we went. We won a couple of Apple Design Awards, uh, raised venture capital, as, as I said, from firstly from a bunch of angel investors and then from Horizons Ventures. Um, and, and the rest is history. That really, that really does sound like quite the party round. Uh, what, what an interesting bunch of people behind it. What led you, as someone who was successfully working in a pretty important part of, of Facebook and had this background, to, to want to jump in and work for a company founded by a 16-year-old? That would have been, I guess, quite a big decision to make. Huge decision. Um, coming from Bush Campus, I obviously had unfinished business with the startup world um, and aspirations to either start or be part of something from the very beginning and, and see it through to, to success. Um, so, so I'd always wanted to either either start something again or, or join something in, in the early days. And, and I think when I met Nick, um, I just knew there was something special about him. Um, at 16, he self-taught, had created a summarization algorithm. Um, he'd built a prototype of the app, which I thought was just spectacular. The use case was, was interesting. Um, and I just wanted to be part of his story. Uh, and, and this is, I think, you know, we'll talk later about, um, about what we look for in founders. But I think in Nick, I saw the magnetism, the charisma, the technical capability, the product vision. You know, every box in my eyes before I was a venture capitalist was ticked as far as this is someone I'd want to work for. And that's a criteria I use today. Um, so a huge decision to join him. But, um, but I think it was... You know, you've got to take some risks in your life, and uh, and that was a calculated risk that that obviously worked out. But um, but it was really a bet on a person, and 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 Nick, you know, delivered on that. What what was the arc of the company? So that was an idea that was very much kind of uh, 
contextual for its time mm. and you had great backing. Uh, was it kind of a, a couple of rounds and an exit or was it kind of a pivot? Like what kind of journey did you go through as a company? Yeah, so no pivots, fortunately. Um, two funding rounds and then an exit. So we, we ended up being acquired by Yahoo in 2013. Um, and that was, a, that was an interesting juncture in the company's history. There was, I mean, transparently, we've never really talked about this, but there was internally some division about whether whether the exit was the right path for us or whether we really should have pushed on. We, when, we, when we were acquired, we had this, um, we had this option of, firstly, the, the algorithm we had was language agnostic. So we were just about to launch into Portuguese, Spanish, Mandarin, and a, and a couple of other languages. That would have expanded our market um, straight away. And then we were considering various other options beyond news. Um, as you may remember, the, the vision was to summarize literally all of the content in the world, and so we we're going to do that vertical by vertical. So we had a you know a pretty solid roadmap and a pretty clear path ahead of us, but um, by the same token, Nick at that time was you know almost eighteen, um, had a very large amount of money put in front of him by one of the world's leading technology companies, and and that was a transformational decision for anyone, but particularly for him at uh, at his point. And so I think um, I think his personal circumstances, as much as anything, dictated the time of, timing of the exit. And having been through that process as someone involved in the company, what kind of insight does that give you when you're dealing with uh, with founders and teams? Because, you know, successes, when you look back on them, become obvious. But it's never obvious at any point through a, a journey, is it? Especially when you're growing ahead of revenue or you're making something that's never been made before. It's not as simple as, oh, you should have held on or you, you shouldn't have. Yeah, so. I th- I, look, I think that's 100% right. And I think... If Sum Lee taught me nothing else, it's empathy for the for the entrepreneurial journey. Um, we, you know, startups are, startups are portrayed externally as a few tech crunch headlines, you know, a couple of funding rounds, maybe a product launch and an exit. And, you know, it's, it's kind of smooth sailing the whole way. And, and, um, and, you know, we had our shares of highlight, share of highlights at Sum Lee, obviously, but, um, but day to day it was, it was mayhem. You know, we were hiring as quickly as we could. We, we had a, I remember one day we were globally featured by Apple, which is huge if you're an app back then. And I think we had you know four or five hundred thousand downloads in a day or two, and all of our servers broke. Um, and so literally, we had half a million people come onto our app and just get a zero experience. And you can imagine, you know, we were awake for thirty six hours trying to fix things with duct tape and and rubber bands, and and it was just chaos. And uh, and those that roller coaster of lows and highs um, is, I think you know, fundamental to the startup journey, but it, it takes a specific mentality and, uh, and you know, team, cohesive team to, to get through that. <laughs> that sounds very much like, uh, like the idea of Silicon Valley as a documentary, doesn't it? That mm. sounds very much like um, that, that show, which obviously has its broader moments, but, um, but yeah, it really does capture some of those ups and downs of the yeah. technology. Yeah, that show is, uh, is spookily accurate sometimes. <laughs> and tell me, tell me about White Star Capital. And so that is something that you were a founding principal at. And, uh, you know, as mentioned in the intro, like uh, investments in companies like Dollar Shave Club that went on to have a, a billion-dollar exit. Um, you know, e- extraordinary kind of uh, companies to go. What, what led you to jump into setting up your own transatlantic VC firm? Yeah, look, I'd love to take credit for this being a well-thought-out path and, and actually for the firm being mine, and, and neither of those things are true. I, um, when we got acquired at Sumley, I actually went back to my old boss at Facebook who was running EMEA, which is essentially you know the rest of the world for Facebook, and um, 
he'd made the intro to Nick in, in the first place, so I took him out to lunch to, to say thank you. Um, and he, at that time, Facebook had been through its IPO and he was sort of thinking about what was next for him and he decided that he wanted to get into venture uh, with a business partner of his based in, in New York. Uh, and I was out of a job, you know, trying to figure out what was next. And so it was a, it was just a lucky happenstance of timing that um, that he asked me to join him uh, on that journey. And so, so Christian, uh, my old boss, and, and Eric, his business partner, were the founding partners of White Star. And then I joined them, you know, on day one as a as a founding principal. And so we we went and raised a venture fund and, and started investing it. And I think that as well, um, you know, I, I talked about Sumley giving me empathy for the for the entrepreneurial journey. I think the beginning of White Star did as well. Actually, I mean, you imagine. Startups raising a seed or a Series A round are looking for a million or three million or five million dollars, which don't get me wrong, is is challenging and 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 a very difficult thing to pull off. But uh, first time venture fund looking for seventy million dollars on a team and no product is kind of the same experience, right? Um, and so you know we spent twelve months talking to a whole bunch of sources of capital and eventually pulled together a, a fund and made some great investments. But it was a it was a painful slog, and um, I think I I think I appreciate the pain of the the funding journey you know as much as anyone and so I you know as a VC today I try and uh, I try and treat founders with the respect and speed that they deserve because you know I've been through that journey a couple of times now and it's uh, it sucks and I guess you know there's that idea which you have mentioned that when you look at a at a company coming to you you're looking for the team as much as anything else and yeah as, as you mentioned there you know, you don't have a product except your future decisions, mm. which is very hard to draw a particularly accurate graph about. Well, you have you have your future decisions and your tra- your track record. Yeah. Um, in in Airtree's case, we've been lucky enough to raise funds reasonably quickly because we have a track record of seventeen exits and a couple of successful funds, um, which you can point to, and and they're no guarantee of future success, obviously, but you can at least point to them as as some proxy for the fact that we know what we're doing. In White Star's case, we were all first timers, um, and so it was literally a team and some angel investments, and and so you know you can understand why a big institution is reluctant to just casually hand over twenty five million dollars to to a group of people who say they're going to do great things. What what have you loved about venture capital? Like, what's kept you interested? Because it's a it's a brutal kind of uh, race, isn't it? You're you're competing for companies. You've got to be aware of everything happening. Uh, you're there for all the highs and lows. Um, you know, that you've got to live with so much uncertainty. It's not a particularly easy job to do, is it? Oh, look, I, it's <laughs> it's by no means an easy job to do, but I, I wouldn't um, it, it's I, I wouldn't want to compare it to what the founders have to do every day. Um, you know, I have the luxury, I guess, of, of sitting across a portfolio of investments and, and getting to work with all of them through the highs and lows. But if you're a founder on that journey... You've got one company, your identity is tied up in it, all of your net worth is tied up in it. You've got, you know, 10, 20, 100 people who are dependent on you, dependent on your success um, to keep them, you know, buying dinner for their family and kids. So um, so, so I, I don't want to cry poor or, or, or uh, apologise for um, how challenging my days are compared to the people I work with. But, it, but in terms of, of what keeps me interested, you know, I think I'm one of those people with, with intellectual ADD. I, um, I love working four great people on different challenges. And I think VC is unique in the sense that I can literally call up the most interesting people in Australia and New Zealand and ask them to tell me about the future. And then, you know, in, in some cases, ask them for the opportunity to work with them for the next 10 years. Um, and that's, that's pretty amazing. So how do you t- talk us through how you go about doing that? So, 
you've got to be aware of things coming up. And so how do you keep up to date with um, with the companies and how do companies come into your radar and what kind of things lead you to want to get to know more about them? Mm. So how do we keep up to date? I mean, part of the job sort of forces us to be up to date, if you like. So if you think about how I spend my days, you know, half of my day, most days would be spent speaking to founders who are literally building the future. And so, and so, you know, part of it is learning about their company and, and, you know, seeing whether it might be a fit for investment for us. But the other, you know, as a result of that, I'm, I'm sitting in a room for three, four, five hours a day, having founders tell me about where the world's going. And so actually, I learn a lot just literally on the tools in those meetings. Um, we spend a whole bunch of time doing thematic research into, into areas that we're interested in. Um, and a lot of our investments come out of that. And so, you know, in my case, I, I spend a lot of time on machine learning. Um, I try and meet companies building, you know, building neural networks to do a whole bunch of different things. And, and then, you know, we've made a bunch of investments um, from thematic to hyperana to MetaOptima to Earth AI, sort of across different industries uh, based on that technology. Um, so, we'll, so we'll do thematic research. We'll talk to founders. We attend conferences. We read the news. We talk to a lot of scientists. There's a whole bunch of different things we do. But, um, but you're right that being across what's happening and where, where the world is going is, is kind of critical to what we do. And then, you know, it's, it's such a thing in pop culture, the kind of the chase for the round and the term sheets and this, that and the other. But, you know, in, in terms of the actual kind of like amount of, um, you, you know, the stuff you do in your job, I can't imagine that's a huge part of it compared to keeping up with companies once they've done it and finding companies on the way in. Like, yeah, like how big a part is that? And then what happens once you've got a company uh, that you're working with? So, so the, the 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 sort of fable of the the competitive round that happens sometimes. There are, you know, I think I led an investment into an education business called Inquisitive. I think they had five term sheets um, when we invested, and so that was a competitive process where all of the investors were pitching Tim, the founder, on you know how they could add more value to his business, and he was we were lucky enough that he chose us. I would say that's the exception rather than the rule, though. Uh, in most of the cases where we've made investments, we've actually known. The entrepreneurs for 12, 18, 20 more four months ahead of an investment. And I think that's actually really important from our perspective, obviously, because we get to know them, but also it's even more important for them, the founder's perspective. Uh, and the reason for that is that venture capitalists are the one set of employees you can't fire. And typically, you'll be working with us for five, 10, maybe longer than that, like an, you know, a large number of years. And if you think about it, the average Australian or Kiwi marriage lasts six or seven years, right? So you're your VC investment is longer than a marriage. And so it sort of seems remarkable to me that, um, that some entrepreneurs would want to meet a VC as they were fundraising, have a couple of meetings, take the money, and then off they go. You know, I, I think we all talk about um, adding value in different ways beyond the, the capital that we, that we provide, and entrepreneurs talk about wanting that. I would have thought as an entrepreneur you'd want to experience that. And so, you know, in, in our perfect world, and, and this is – We've two most recent investments we've made a secure code warrior and a cloud guru, and I think in both of those cases we knew the founders for more than twenty four months each, and they were competitive rounds in the sense that those founders could have raised money from a lot of different people, um, but they weren't competitive in the sense that there wasn't a defined formal process of those rounds. We, you know, we'd literally been working with um, Sam and Sam and a cloud guru and uh, and Peter at Secure Code Warrior for 24 months. In, in Secure Code Warrior's case, we'd hired a couple of people into his business before investing. Um, 
and and you know we'd worked with them on strategy on introducing customers on a whole bunch of different things and so i think when it came to thinking about capital we were the obvious partner because we'd built that relationship and they'd seen what it was like to work with us so so the coming circling right back to your original question sometimes there is a really competitive process around around but i think our preferred scenario and hopefully the investments that that work out as well if not better are long-term relationships ahead of ahead of taking money and I guess those relationships also, um, when you've got the numbers in VC, you know, the famous kind of like power rules and the like, like, you know, one out of 10 will be so big it'll carry the three that fail and three will break even and three might give you a little return or something. And, you, you know, you, he- you hear those kind of stories. Is, is that actually broadly accurate or is that just, you know, across the whole industry? Are there certain companies that do better than that? And and when you're dealing with people, you know, are, are you kind of like, it's probably easier sitting above it and going, well, you know, some of these will work and some of these won't. But it can't be that easy if you're, if you're in one of the ones that isn't going that well. Look, it's it's certainly true that, um, that breakout companies return funds many times over. And, you know, you see this with Uber's IPO at the moment, I think, has returned Benchmark's fund almost 20 times, uh, same for first round. Facebook returned Axel's fund many, many fold over. So, so where you're in a true breakout company, that that's game changing. And and in in those examples, the rest of your portfolio, I don't want to say doesn't matter, but it it, it one company just outshines the rest. Um, our view is that that's great if you can pull it off, and you'd love to be in in breakout companies like that. And you know, in in our fund, we've got. You know, Canva looks like that. Prosper looks like that. There's a few other companies that are kind of on track um, to do that. But but we we don't subscribe to the mentality of okay, it's fine if three companies fail. Um, because in saying that, what that means is three of the founding teams you're working with will have to get rid of all of their employees and go back to who knows what, and their lives will fall apart. And it, it has real consequences in real lives. And and, and so I think. Um, I get kind of disappointed when the industry just talks about, okay, there's going to be some zeros and that's fine, um, because that ignores the human reality of, of what happens when these businesses fail. And so we, you know, we find ourselves spending a lot more of our time relatively on the companies that are struggling than, than perhaps we should and then perhaps economics would dictate. But I think that's the, that's the human reality. And, and we hate to see companies go to zero because that's a bad outcome for founders. It's a bad outcome for employees. It's a bad outcome for us, but, um, but it's worse for the people whose lives are, are you know, relied on these companies. How does a company, like if someone, you know, is interested in a space that they think that you might be interested in, say, you know, AI, machine learning uh, kind of uh, area potentially, you know, do, do people just drop you an email? Like how, how to, or do you, do, you know, do you like to have people recommend things to you or what, what's the way that that works? Yeah, this is, this is the great um the great irony of our job, we, we sit around internally going, how do we meet more great companies? And then obviously founders sit around saying, how do we meet these VCs? And so it's, it's this weird process where oftentimes we'll reach out to companies that we're interested in. Um, but um, but in terms of, in terms of in, incoming signals, we look, you know, the, the thing we take most seriously is a recommendation from one of the founders we already work with. You know, if, if an Airtree founder introduces anyone to me, I'll take that meeting and take it really seriously. Um, but then we, you know, we have a whole bunch of other signals we look for. Um, you know, anyone in our network, whether it be other co-investors, angel investors, that kind of thing that we that we work with. We work closely with a number of technology organisations who, you know, make suggestions to us from time to time. 
we attend conferences, we speak at conferences, we go and listen to people at conferences and, you know, we'll come up to you in the audience or, or vice versa. So we try and make ourselves as approachable and, and as accessible as possible. Um, but by the same token, obviously, you know, we meet, I think we meet three and a half thousand businesses each year. So, you know, we have to filter in some way. Um, and so we look for these signals to do that. But, um, but I guess the other topic that's relevant here now that we're talking about this is if you just rely on your internal filters, you can entrench biases and prejudices that you already have. And so we're, you know, we're really cognizant of that and trying to be available to the inbound, you know, to the, to the, we try and be available to the, to the email at community at airtree.vc and, and people who aren't, won't come in through our natural networks. But, um, but we do have to filter in some way and that's, uh, that's part of the challenge. What advice do you have for people who are interested in getting into VC? Because <laughs> I guess kind of, you know, be part of a really successful company and exit is not the easiest thing to, to, to necessarily uh, work out. And some, some companies do have partners who are, or, or people working in venture capital who aren't from that um, exited a big kind of uh, company background, are they? No, and you don't have to be, right? Like the, we think that the, that having been involved in startups gives you an empathy um, and some experience that's relevant to founders. But some of the great VCs in the world ha- don't have that. Fred Wilson has been a VC all of his life. And, you know, if you're a founder, you'd happily take Union Square Ventures money. I think Bill Gurley was an equities analyst prior to, you know, becoming a partner at Benchmark. So so there are great VCs who don't have that um, that founding or that operational background. And I think, you know, you can come from anywhere. Um, in terms of what advice I would give to people who wanted to get into venture, first of all, it's a tiny industry. I mean, there are maybe a couple of dozen jobs in Australia and New Zealand um, that are interesting in venture. So so I, so it's hard. Um, I, think, I think the best path in my view is to go and work for a venture-backed company or, or found a venture-backed company, obviously. Um, because I think that at least gives you a taste of the speed of growth, the execution, kind of the chaos that ensues um, that, that will give you some, some relevance when you're, when you're then investing in those companies. Um, and then, you know, in the same way that, that founders should come and relationship build with us for 12, 24 months ahead of taking our money, uh, if you're interested in coming and working with us, the same story applies. You know, come and have a few coffees with us. Let's talk about some companies that uh, that you're interested in. We'll do the same thing. And, and if there's a meeting of the minds, then you never know. Ah, very cool. Very cool. And how do you define success? So having been part of a few different things that are successful in, in different ways and, and, and being a supporter to other people's success, but it also ends up being kind of your success or failure. Like, yeah, what, what's, your, what's your definition of success? My personal benchmark for success are founder references. Um, I think that, you know, as someone who's youngish into my venture career, I've only been investing for six years now, and who's looking to to invest for 30 plus years, I think what's going to make or break me is having great founders stand up for me. And, you know, when I'm, when I'm trying to invest in a company or when I'm trying to convince a, another great founder that they should uh, work with me, I think what the existing founders that I partner with, what they say about me is the most important thing for, for my ongoing success and probably is the kind of future proxy of how well I'll invest. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much, John Henderson, partner at Airtree Ventures, for coming and talking to us today. Uh, and if people are interested, you've, you've found a few little ways to kind of get um, access to VC now. Uh, thank you for sharing your story. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
Thank you very much to Tina Dilla for producing, and thank you very much for having us along and listening. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring. Brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.